Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I would also like to mention that our next L. Ron Hubbard Presents Rise of the Future volume is now available. This volume contains 12 incredibly talented authors and 12 brilliant illustrators selected by some of your favorite names in science fiction and fantasy. If you're a fan of science fiction or fantasy, you'll absolutely find new voices you will love. And if you're an aspiring writer or illustrator, these stories and illustrations provide great examples of the quality necessary to break into the ranks of professional. Writers of the Future anthologies are available wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia. Today's guest is Martin Shoemaker. I met Martin as a winner in Elrond Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 31, with his story, Unrefined. In my copy of the book, Martin made a special inscription, which I continue taking to heart. He wrote, Thank you for this amazing contest and workshop. I would not have a writing career if it weren't for Writers of the Future. If there's anything I can do to help the contest, never hesitate to ask. I'm absolutely taking him up on that offer yet again. In addition to Rise of the Future, his work has appeared in Analog Science Fiction and Fact, Galaxy's Edge, Digital Science Fiction, Forever Magazine, and numerous anthologies including Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, Manzin Ward uh, 15, the Jim Bain Memorial Award, The First Decade, Little Green Men Attack, More Human Than Human, Stories of Androids, Robots, and Manufactured Humanity, Avatar Dreams, and Weird World War III. He expanded his Nebula-nominated Clark's World story, Today I Am Paul, into his debut novel, Today I Am Carrie. His novel, The Last Dance, was published by 47 North, followed by the sequel, The Last Campaign. Martin recently proposed a blog on the unwritten rules of the contest, which is going up concurrent with this podcast. I felt this was important enough that I wanted to turn it into its own podcast episode. So with that said, welcome back, Martin. Thank you for having me, John. I'm glad to be here and always glad to help the contest. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate your help. And also when you fly out each year to uh, help at the, uh, at the workshop week too. So a little bit just, I guess, before we get into this thing here, um, tell me a little about your writing career um, so that people that are listening to stuff too can, you know, if they relate to it, because you're a programmer by trade and um, then also tie in your, your geekdom with uh, your science fiction writing as well. Now, and your biography co covered a lot of the high points. I've been a storyteller for literally as long as I can remember, but programming is this very lucrative job field, which is also just as creative in its own way. In my book, Making Story Models, that I released last summer, yeah. I talk about how there's actually a lot of similarity between building software about a person who needs to solve a problem and writing a story about a person who needs to solve a problem. 
So they're complementary sides of my whole storytelling slash problem solving brain. Wow. And so I have been building a lot from that. I get it. So, so where are you going now with respect to your careers? Are you sticking now with churning out novels? Uh, I'm doing a little of both. I've got some novels in progress. I've got short stories in progress. Analog is coming out with one probably before the end of the year. They haven't given me a release yet, release date yet, called Sluggish, which is actually inspired by a writing retreat that a number of past Writers of the Future winners went on, and their cabin got invaded by giant slugs, and I took that to an extreme. Um, <laughs> it's, it's rare for me to do biological hard science fiction, Biology is gross. This may be the <laughs> grossest thing I've ever written. <laughs> I get it. Now, I'm just curious. What is the timeline on a story for like any of these, these may, like astounding? What, what's the timeline from when you originally submitted to now where it's going to be published so that other people can get an idea of what, you know, well, I wrote it. I submitted it. It should be up in the next couple of months. It's really variable because the, the editor's job is to create a cohesive single issue that the stories don't overlap each other too much, that they complement each other, and then create cohesive year of the magazine. And so sometimes the story will just be, we can't do two of those stories in the same month, or as an example, which is very similar to the contest. One of the unwritten rules that never got written in my essay, but one of them is that Dave used to talk about if he gets a really great ghost in a castle story submitted to the contest, and then somebody in, submits a slightly better ghost in the castle story, he's not going to take both of them for the contest because they'll just split the judge's vote, and he wants an anthology that has a good reflection of the entire field. Right. And the magazines have a similar concern that if, unless they have a themed issue, they do have to balance these things out. I have seen the, the time be as short as one month. When I wrote Today I Am Paul and sent that out to Clark's World, about nine days later, they said, hurry up on this contract because we're reorganizing the August issue to put this in the front. Wow. And so that was less than six weeks from signing the contract to appearing. I have seen it be over a year, especially if you do a longer piece, because the magazines only have room generally for one long piece per issue, so they have to space those out. I get it. And from when you first submit the story to when you hear back from me, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the lag on that? That's also going to vary by market. Um, and, and people will complain about this, but some markets are slow because they get so many submissions some markets get so many submissions because they're fast. Going back to Clark's World, my average response rate on Clark's World is under a day. Wow. And that's pretty typical for them. My average response for analog is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight months. My average response for Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen, two mystery magazines, one of them is slightly under a year and one of them is significantly over a year. And this Jeez. is why we have tools like Duotrope.com, which is a site for finding markets and tracking your submissions. 
Duotrope will tell you what is the average report, re reported response time and what is the maximum reported response time, how recently they've responded to stories and so on, to help you get an idea of what is realistic to expect. Um, we always have to remember, to me, my story is my one precious thing. And to that editor, it is one of 1,400 that came in this month. Or in the case of Writers of the Future, one of thousands that come in every quarter. Right. And so to the author, that is a single precious event. To the market, it is something that they want to give fair attention to, but they've got a lot of them to look at. Right. There's a lot of preciouses that have been <laughs> sent their way. <laughs> All right. So now you said you've got various novels and short stories. How many do you juggle at a time, novels and short stories? Um, more than I should. <laughs> right now I am, I am juggling three novels, one which is finished and I'm going through the editing process, one which is, I want to say, two-thirds dictated because I dictate all my work, but now I have to clean up the dictation, and one which is maybe half dictated because it kind of depends. I want to be working all the time. But if I right. wake up in the morning and I don't have what it takes to be doing a Hollywood-based sorcery story, which you folks help me do research on that because you keep flying me out to Hollywood. <laughs> I, if I don't have the mood for that, I will switch to my high fantasy parallel world story. So I'll bounce around and sometimes I will bounce around just to short stories to say, okay, I'm going to cleanse my palate with that. Uh, especially if a deadline comes up, um, if there's an anthology with a particular deadline, then I'm going to prioritize that one while others are still working in the back burner. I get it. Now, you've been published by both Bain Books and 47 North. So are you in a, a bit of a position now? So because you're a known commodity that – and the same thing also you're, you're talking about to the Clark's World as a known commodity that you're automatically taken – and forwarded to the editor without having to go through a slush reader? I don't know what happens inside of the organization, so I cannot say that for a fact. I can say that at Bain, I have an assigned editor. At 47 North, I have an assigned editor. So for those, I am definitely bypassing the slush. Inside of the magazines, I can tell you my impression is that being a known commodity helps. But sometimes it helps in the other direction because when Trevor Cashry at Analog sees my story in the slush, he doesn't do what he does with every other story, which is open it and read the first couple of pages to see if he wants to read more. He assumes he wants to read more. So I get put off into the hold pile. But sometimes that hold pile can sit there a long time as he's dealing with the slush. I'm sorry, for those who don't have the jargon going way back more than 100 years now, stories submitted blind or submitted through the submission portal are called the slush pile because it used to be they would be thrown literally over the transom in old New York offices and the editor would come in in the morning and here's this small mountain of dirty white sheets of paper that looked like slush. There we go. So there we got the, the definition and etymology both at the same time here. That's great. <laughs> so. Yeah, I was just curious about that because it's, I mean, it's great that you can get Clark's World same day, but that seems a bit out of the ordinary because they also get a lot of submissions. 
Clark's world is very fast and very high rejection rate. It's 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 a little faster to reject if you are really not planning to buy, which sounds weird, but they're getting such a high submission rate that they assume, and this is one of our principles for the contest as well, you assume that most of the stories that come in are going to be rejected. Right. Um, Mike Resnick, our, our late judge, told of when he was doing uh, slush editing for a particular magazine back in the 60s, their rule of thumb was if a slush reader could not open the envelope, pull out the story, look at the first page, decide it was junk, put it into the self-addressed return envelope, and add a card saying, no, thank you, and seal that envelope. If they couldn't do that in 10 seconds, fire them. <laughs> because if they couldn't keep up at that rate, they would get buried in stories that they just were never going to use. They paid well, so they got a lot of submissions, but they had to therefore filter it quickly. The contest isn't quite that bad with the thousands. No, fortunately, fortunately. But, but, but they don't have time for most stories to read more than a couple of pages. If it hasn't caught their attention inside of a couple of pages, Jody and the slush readers have just got to move on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fact. Okay, good. Well, that's interesting. I've, I've not really had this conversation before, so this is good. And I hope people listening are like, take this to heart too. So, because I get, you know, people are incensed. Look at it's been there for a month. Why haven't I heard yet? You know, so what's as a comparative, they can get like, oh, okay, so I'm not out of the ordinary. And for Rise of the Future specifically, judging doesn't start until the quarter ends. We don't like parse out the story so that they all come and they start being reviewed by the slush readers. And then Jody starts going through them as one chunk so that we can just you know, but it's after the end of the quarter. So if you submitted your story, theoretically, on the first day of the quarter, you have to wait till that three months is up. And then you'll hear again, normally, just after the end of the next quarter is when you're here. So you, if you submit at the beginning of a quarter, it's conceivable you won't hear anything for half a year. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you submit on the last day of the quarter, then you'll hear roughly in three months. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are strategic reasons to submit on the first day. Uh, that was my personal decision. So I got used yeah. to those long waits. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. So now these um, unwritten rules of the contest. So you had three basic categories, the principles of content, principles of structure, and principles of format. So um, let's go ahead and get started now on the uh, – the first section of the principles of content. So let's just discuss that, please. Yeah. When I put this list together originally, it was just a pure brain dump from my 12 plus years of involvement with the contest and from all the things that Dave has taught us over the years and Jody and Carrie is the slush reader and talking to judges and, and talking back and forth lessons I'd heard from other winners and from Joni and from you and everybody involved. I just did a brain dump of 30-some items, and then I started saying, let's organize these. And the principal area was the content, because this is kind of indisputable. Right. When we get into structure and format, they are principles that you might get away with breaking them, but it, you're setting up a barrier for yourself, a bar to pass. But the content ones, 
these are rules that it's really hard to get through when you break these. One of them is, is simply, this is a science fiction fantasy short story contest. And that turns into a number of principles of content because of the ways people violate that. But if you keep that in mind, science fiction or fantasy, not horror, nothing wrong with horror in general, but it's not for this contest, Science fiction, fantasy, short story, which for the purposes of this contest is under 17,000 words, fiction. That leads to a whole bunch of content rules because people will send in things that are too long. People will send in things that aren't science fiction and fantasy. Uh, people will send in things that aren't fictional stories at all. Carrie has done at FireCon now with your folks' help and, and permission has done her live slush reading session called The Slush is Alive. Mm -hmm. And she, in those, she has talked about some of the things that they receive that aren't right for the contest at all. Um, somebody, I don't know who, has listed this contest in various college scholarship catalogs, which, you know, if you're a college student, the prize money for this contest is a nice little addition to your college fund. Right. So it makes sense that they see it as that, but they don't go and actually read what the contest is about. They just say, oh, well, then I'll submit my scholarship essay, which generally is one of two things. How I overcame adversity and therefore I deserve to go to college <laughs> or this is an important topic and this is my opinion about it. Those don't belong at this contest, but people who are just finding the link through a, through a college scholarship catalog won't see that. Yeah. So those are two content principles that are easily violated. Yeah, we've actually had a lot of, not a lot, we've had several more on the illustrator side, students who have entered this and have taken advantage of, of this. One of our uh, judges now for the illustrator contest, um, Brittany Jackson, B. Jackson, uh, did it as a, she was in uh, poor streets, the mean streets of Detroit and um, uh, needed the money for college. So she entered the contest and she won and she was a grand prize winner and she used it to, to pay for college. So it is a definite mm -hmm. thing, but you're right. You've got to like, it's a writing contest. It's science fiction fantasy. It's not um, Mein Kampf as a writer. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and, they literally get that sort of thing of here is my polemical position that I want the world to know about. Yeah. Um, they also break content rules because the contest, as, as you have explained to us multiple times, the contest has a PG 13 rating. For those of you not familiar with the American movie rating system, that means it's supposed to be aimed at audiences 13 and up specifically because Galaxy Press markets this book heavily towards middle school or junior high libraries. That's right. And while you may know 13-year-olds who can swear like a sailor and have seen the things on movies and TVs that you'll never get to see in this contest, they're not the ones buying this for schools. Librarians are buying this for schools. And library boards and school boards and parents. So... I know that you may think that 13-year-olds these days can handle more mature subjects, but the contest and the book are aimed at approval by those more conservative librarians and boards. That's right. 
And so people will violate those rules for entirely understandable story reasons. Uh, an an F-bomb in a story doesn't make it a bad story. It makes it the wrong story for this market. And I can recommend some better markets where you'll get away with that. But if you do it here, you're out. Yeah. And that's just the reality. So you, did, you need to think with alts. There's other ways to, mm -hmm. to, to give your upset main character the ability to, uh, you know, just because you're sailor doesn't mean you yeah. need to, um, to go like that. But anyway, we go into that. Well, Battlestar Galactica on TV made up their own yeah. curses. Firefly on TV snuck right past American censors by using Chinese curses. And I don't know if you'll get away with it, this market or not. I don't know because some of your judges and slush readers might be smart enough to read those. But, but they're not on the verboten right. list. The F-bomb is on the verboten list. Uh, ethnic slurs and other sorts of denigrating names are on the verboten list. Whereas um, somebody recently on the forum asked if bloody is on the verboten list. Because apparently we Americans hear bloody from the Brits and we think it's kind of cute and amusing. Apparently that's a serious curse in Britain. Not that, you, again, you don't hear it on the streets all the time, but it's a serious curse. I don't think anybody is going to blink at bloody appearing in the yeah, context. Yeah, no, bloody hell. It's like, I mean, mm -hmm. that, if it does have something, it's, it's, it's even from, um, anyway, I actually don't know, but I, from what I've got, Myself, just from reading literature here, and even just in, from Hollywood, it's a, um, it's just, it's a euphemism that can replace other things which are verboten. But I go into this quite a bit also mm -hmm. on episode two twenty five with Mark Leslie. We did an episode on um, publishing's equivalent of the um, rating system, the movie rating system. So that might be something you might be interested in as a separate point. But anyway, so. On our on our foray through um, the principles of content, any other uh, key things on this? Because it's you know I want to be able we're at about twenty three minute mark here, so I want to you know we're going to go yeah. for an hour here. So um, you have a lot of good points here on this thing here. So I think content is is one of the the most important parts of it because if you get the content, then you can then we can deal with the, the structure and format. But more on the content, please. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't have time to read all of them by any means. That's why it's going up yeah. on the blog so that people can look in depth. But one that I have heard is often a problem, and this is something that if you're a professional writer, you get hammered with this from many directions, but as a new writer, it might not get to you. No song lyrics. Absolutely, positively, no song lyrics. Um, okay, if you wrote the song lyrics, yeah, that's okay. But song lyrics for your favorite song that you've heard that is less than 100 years old are very likely a copyright violation. And even though you may think it's only a line, a line of, cop of a song might be 10% of the whole song. That would be the equivalent of taking a 20-chapter book and printing two chapters out of it in your book. So you just don't do the song lyrics. And unfortunately... We as writers, we love songs. Yeah, Songs inspire us. And when a song inspires us, we will often put those inspiring lines in, and that's just wrong. You can quote the title of the song, 
But be careful that it's the title, not the lyric. And very often they're the same thing, that the title is one of the lyrics. So as an example I have in the unwritten rules, your character can listen to ACDC's Back in Black, but if your character sings Back in Black and the lyrics appear on the page, you're out. Right. Good. That's a good analogy. And part of an insight into the mind of Martin Shoemaker. Okay, good. So um, another thing too is, we talk about profanity, but just to make sure people know too, it's like <clears throat> no sex on the page. It's like, it's okay yeah. that people have relationships. That's totally fine. And the concept of sex isn't a problem, but but no, no actual sex on the page itself is allowed for the contest. And, and it's a little farther than that, as I learned when I shared this list with Carrie, who's the first reader. She said, and not even implied sex with underage. For sure. Again, those school librarians. Yeah. And no, never implied non-consensual sex unless it's part of a character's background and it's a necessary part of their background for the story. Because you do have characters that this is part of the trauma they've been through. Right. But by no means have it be approved of in any fashion. You can have a character who is driven by the trauma of non-consensual sex. But you're dancing on a line at that point. So it's something yeah. to be careful about. And the main about. thing is we're looking at, too, this is, this is science fiction fantasy. So we want to keep it in that mm -hmm. direction there, speculative fiction. And then violence is okay, but no gratuitous graphic violence. Um, there's, there's a definite mm -hmm. difference on that. And some of that's judgment call. If you think it's necessary violence, I, I'm a firm believer in, as an author, believe in your story. Right. But also accept that the editor makes a decision in the process. If you think your violence is necessary, the slush reader or Jody may think it's gratuitous and say, sorry, I disagree. And that's okay. Again, there are other markets for that story. Yeah. But, but try not to get close to the line. Yeah. Now, one thing too, is like, we're not a vanilla. I mean, Rise of the Future is not a vanilla book. You know, it's not just, you know, <clears throat> drab, boring, and stay away from any extremism at all. That's, that's not what it is. If you've read a book, you'll find out there's a lot of stuff in there. A lot of things like, oh my gosh. And some things in there are like really um, cringeworthy for myself. I'm really getting into story. It's such a good story that you're just drawn into it. It's just that these, these points here aren't needed to make a story that's, that's good. I mean, that's, that's one thing too that, and why we use a lot of this stuff too, that when Elwin Hubbard created the contest, he himself published over 200 stories. He was one of the most popular writers of, of pulp fiction and he wrote all kinds of stuff, but he didn't, he didn't get into the gratuitous violence or sex or profanity. And it wasn't part of at least the publications that he wrote for wouldn't accept that anyway. But you don't have to have that to mm -hmm. tell a good story. That's that's like the point on that. When we have our stories from the Golden Age, which is a line of 153 short stories written by, by Mr. Hubbard, we'll go to military bases and we sell just uh, – bucket loads of, of these books um, because uh, 
you don't have to have that to tell a good story. His his book, Battlefield Earth, nearly 5 million copies sold now. It just continues to sell really well. There's no gratuitous. I mean, there's a lot of violence in there, but it's not the gratuitous violence that kind of like is unnecessary. You know, if you're going to have a war, of course people get killed. But you don't have to, at least with Rise of the Future, go into like he stuck the you know, the sword in his left eye socket and ripped it out. And, you know, that type of stuff isn't needed to tell a story that you've just had a, a, a violent scene in a, in a war episode. So that's part of it too. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean, again, like you say, that doesn't mean squeaky clean. There's a place for dark. Um, when we said no horror, there's a line between horror and dark fantasy. Dark fantasy Absolutely. is acceptable. There is a place for dark, but there is dark. Generally, shouldn't shouldn't triumph in the story. Yeah, dark should generally be a factor. I like to point out that although we all know that volume thirty one is the best volume ever and always <laughs> will be, but that being said, I thought volume thirty five was an amazing volume. Some phenomenal stories, and almost every single one of them is dark. It's astonishing how dark that ended up being, considering it's being ultimately the judges. Dave made selections from the finalists. He can only choose from what gets submitted. And then the judges are voting on from those selections. That is a very dark volume. So if you want an example of, can I be dark? Yes, you can. But you need to be dark within limits. You need to be dark with sometimes some concessions. Uh, a rule that I was unaware of until Carrie looked at my list and, and pointed it out is we do not want to see real world substance abuse, especially not real world substance abuse that looks glamorous or endorsing yeah. related. We do not want to see real world suicide shown as a positive option to be encouraged. Right. But you can have a character who contemplates suicide because their their problems are so big. And we can have, and this was in volume 35, you can have fantastical substances that are abused. Uh, there was, I forget now who wrote it in 35, but there was a person who was basically addicted to magic that the casting of magic was slowly destroying their life. So it's a metaphor for what drugs do without being about real-world drugs. Uh, in, in volume 31, the best volume ever, it opened with Steve Pantazes with his story Switch, which is about a character addicted to a cyber-enhancing drug. So if you think that drugs are an important topic that test and challenge characters, you can get away with that. Yeah. Just... Not meth, not fentanyl, not cocaine. Come up with your own. Exactly. So now um, let's see what else we have here. On um, Now, one thing that's been a problem for too, which causes now judges to look at the end of a story before, if they get past page one or two, and then they'll flip to the end to make sure if it's, if it's a long story, to make sure it's just not a chapter out of a novel. Yes. Um, and I talk about that in the rules. Point 18. Now, people are going to 
disagree with this because there are plenty of example stories out there that violate what I'm about to say. And some of them are really good and some of them have gotten published. But traditionally in Western fiction, a story has a beginning, an inciting incident that changes things, a middle where you struggle to understand and cope with the changes, a climax where something really changes and you've understood what was going on and now the world has changed because of this understanding and you have an ending. Right. If your novel excerpt has a beginning and an inciting incident in the middle and a climax and changes and an ending, that novel excerpt will be just fine in this contest. As was the case um, with Patrick Roth. Patrick Roth has had his story, The Road to Levenshire, which was a short story of a, based on a chapter he pulled out of his uh, first novel. Yep. And that first novel went on to become a serious major hit, but the story itself didn't need to be that whole novel. It stood on its own. Right. If you have a novel excerpt that has the necessary elements to be a story in its own right, a satisfying story in its own right, go ahead and send it in. But if your novel excerpt is just scenes that happened at the start of your book or the middle of your book, uh, that's not going to fly. My best advice, which no one wants to follow, <laughs> but my best advice, if you seriously want to submit your novel excerpt, excerpt the ending. Send yeah. that. Because it's going to have a climax and ending. And if everybody's like, but that will spoil my book. I agree. I'm telling you how you can successfully send in an excerpt that's almost guaranteed to be a story on its own. Whether you want to send that in is a different yeah. matter. Another thing that was really interesting, just the other side of what you just said there, on um, which I just experienced, is in volume 39, David Hankins had his story, which I loved, Death and the Taxman. And um, so it's a short story which has all those points in it. He just turned that into a novel, which is um, soon to release. And I just finished reading it. And um, it was nice. it's interesting how he took that story and expanded he put a whole new middle he just you know he had all the points in it correctly because he obviously he won and it's, it's a it's a real fun story real funny but then he expanded it quite a bit and turned it into a full i don't know it's a hundred thousand word novel it was just it was pretty amazing that's totally fine but that's not something you're going to do here to enter the contest but it's something you can do to take a short story and expand it to a novel and thereby keep all those points in it. you just listed that a story must have yeah. So, unfortunately, Carrie also tells stories of people who send in their whole novel. Yeah, that's just ain't going to happen. And and you're not going to get even looked at. They can see how long the file yeah. is, and yeah. and you're out. Uh, she also tells stories of sometimes people sending in somebody else's whole novels. Apparently, somebody submitted Call of the Wild, <laughs> which is. Not science fiction or fantasy and plagiarism. Yeah, I must admit, I love Jack London, but uh, that's not going to get very far in this contest. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's see, we've also got anything else on. Um, yeah, so like you said, nothing has been previously uh, professionally published. So even if you're not going to go to your favorite adventure story writer, yeah, it's we can't violate copyright here. And it's, and we do. We do test. We do check to make sure we're not violating copyright. And you're dealing with authors as the judges who are incredibly well-read. 
amazingly well read. Mm -hmm. And so they can see through this stuff here. Did um, in your discussions with uh, Carrie go anything about uh, AI generated stories? We have had long discussions about AI generated stories. And I, I think I could do half a podcast just on those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the short answer is they're bad and we know they're AI generated as soon as we see them. Yeah. Or at least the authors I talk to do. And I have literally about a 20 minute discussion of how come they're recognizably bad AI. And so that's out. On the other hand, I know some really good authors who are using AI for prompts. And I'm a huge believer in story prompts. It's, in fact, part of the workshop for the winners of Writers mm -hmm. of the Future is the 24-hour story where we get a random object from Tim's bag of stuff <laughs> and some random reading and a random person to talk to. And now we have 24 hours to turn that into a story. Yeah. Since the contest, I have really gotten into depth on the study of prompts as a way of just essentially starting your brain going. Because many of the people who write great 24-hour stories, their three pieces never actually show up in the story. It wasn't to write a story about those three things. It was to get your brain moving so fast that you can write a story in a day. Yeah. I know writers who are using the AI-generated junk as their prompt. Yeah. And now they're off and running and they write a real right. story. And if they're good writers, they will be good writers from that prompt. Good. Yeah, we put it, uh, you'll see it published in the next volume, but uh, no AI stories. It's, it's an automatic reject if you have a, a story that you've submitted that was AI generated. Same thing with illustration. Yeah. Um, it became an issue. So we just put as a rule in there like no AI generated art for stories. And with the illustration, it's a bit easier. And, and it really is recognizable if you have the good yeah. eye. And if it's something, and I mean, things are always, you're always going to find somebody wanting, you say, you can't do this. You're always going to find somebody who's going to want to try to game it and say, okay, you know, and mm -hmm. do it. And we had, uh, which one of the things that inspired putting this in there is just the contest is for aspiring writers and artists, you know, and so that's not going to go away. You know, people that can tell a good story, you know, it's just like you've got, I don't see it a whole, at least at this stage, I don't see it a whole lot different as the music that you listen to in an elevator versus going to a, a, a live concert. You know, it's just, it's just, mm -hmm. it's different. When, if you have somebody who's been so uh, numbed down that they can't tell the difference, okay, that's what you got there. But that's, that's a definite audience there. I ran, I ran into this when I did a, a survey. This is with the Audio Publishers Association when I was a board member uh, some years ago. And we did these surveys and we had these really high quality stories that we would, that we create. And people couldn't hear the difference between that and just a junky um, recorded audiobook because the quality of, of a player that they have was so poor that they couldn't tell the difference between a high quality production and a low quality production because of the, the, the poor quality of the boom box they were using. So you're going to have that mm -hmm. as well, where you just, you can make something for a real refined audience, but a, a regular people that, that not into, 
you know, all the nuances of sound aren't going to really pay attention to this extra work you put into it. So in that case, those people maybe will enjoy the um, AI-generated art and stories. But right now, that's not what this contest is about. Well, as I've pointed out to friends, audience has been watching America's Funniest Home Videos for 40 years. They've been watching Survivor for 30-ish. Those aren't things with great stories behind them. There is another appeal yeah. there. Good. And so not everybody is looking for a great story, but this contest exactly. is. Exactly right. Um, let's see. Um, I think we pretty much we did pretty good on, on this first category. So that's the principles of content. Now we've got the principles of structure. So you opened up where you say, uh, uh, be aware that false tension doesn't work. False tension is when you withhold information solely so you can surprise the reader with it later. So let's go into that because that's that's a good point. And it's a subtle one because it's one that can be broken, but it takes some skill. Twilight Zone did a lot with false tension. Um, my, one of my favorite TV series, Leverage, where where you're essentially you are lying to the audience so that you can surprise them later, and in retrospect, they will recognize what was really going on. But that doesn't work often without skill, and if you are trying to surprise them by information that you just withheld, that by all rights should have been there, that's cheating. Right. And so um, I brought that up largely for a couple of the content rules that follow, where people... I, I won't say this is a bad story, but it doesn't satisfy me. People love to do stories where they don't tell you necessary information right up front. And when they tell you, there's no real reason why. They don't tell you that the character is a robot until two-thirds of the way through the story. And when they tell you, it's not a it's not a missing piece of a jigsaw puzzle. It's just they didn't bother telling you. They don't tell you where the story is set. Uh, Dave used to say, and I've heard it from Jody, if I don't know your character's name and what the place is within the first couple of pages, it's probably a rejection. And people will argue back, but that's the big surprise. Well, the problem with that, remember, is thousands of entries, no time to read more than a couple of pages. If you've got a 60-page book, and a brilliant surprise happens on page 40 that explains the mysteries on page four. I never got to page 40 because to me, it wasn't a mystery. It was, this is an author who's confused and doesn't know what their story is. Good. Which is entirely unfair, <laughs> but it's the reality when you have thousands of stories to get right. through. I, I have some bad news for new writers but I was a new writer once, and it was bad news for me, too, and it's just the reality of it. I can sell a story to Trevor Cashry at Analog that a new writer can't because Trevor has got the same issue of, I think, something in the neighborhood of 1,400 stories come in per month, and he's got no time to get through them. He sees a new reader who has spent two to three pages writing about high school students preparing for their exam. And he says, this person doesn't even know what analog's about, and he rejects it. 
I submit the exact same story of those two to three pages of high school students preparing for the exam. And Trevor says, wait, I know Martin. Martin knows that this is a science fiction magazine. He sold us 20 stories. What is Martin up to? That's where that name recognition has a benefit. That's right. And so I can sell that story with the surprise on page 40 to explain page four. Probably. Trevor may still get bored. He doesn't, I, I don't have an infinite free pass on this, but he's going to give me more of a chance. The contest, because everything's anonymous, nobody's getting a free pass for name recognition. That's right. So if you don't have that information up front, it looks like you are an unskilled author. Now you, yeah, and that's just a, a thing yes. to deal with. Now, one thing it doesn't prevent you if you're really going to believe your story, and you're going to have problem with any uh, market you sell to where they're where they have a high volume of, of submissions. You can also take your own road, you know, self-publish and take it to Amazon. Vela is uh, Amazon. Vela is um, is a venue you can take it to where you do chapter by chapter by chapter publishing. And build your audience that way, and people can can take. I did an episode on on Amazon Vela uh, a year or so ago, but it's um, it's you def you're up against that because of, of the volume of submissions that the judges have to go through. That you might have, like you said, you might have a, a great story, but nobody's going to get to that point. Uh, they just don't have the time or the bandwidth to be able to bear with you as you build and try to create this, this false tension. And this ties into a guideline that's been there certainly longer than I've been in the contest. Dave always said, Jody says, the speculative element should be visible in the first couple of pages, or at least a hint. Yeah. I mean, you could do it in a title. Asimov had a story called Marooned Off Vesta. If you're an astronomy geek, you know that Vesta is an asteroid. You know this is going to be an asteroid story without reading a single line. But you need to have something like that up front. And in fact, I, with my one semifinalist under the late coordinating judge, Katie Wentworth, that story was about a uh, mate on a... 19th century tea clipper and a alien lifeboat falls from the sky and this ship rescues the alien aboard and it changes the life of this mate on the ship. And it takes time to establish the routine aboard the ship and why this mate is kind of an outsider, a very professional sailor, but doesn't quite fit in here and his life is going to change from this. It took me four pages to set that up, and I knew the two-page rule. And so I violated my story structure in a way that I would not do if I were selling that same story to Analog today. My opening paragraph was, had it not been for the storm, I would not have been out on the deck that night, and I would not have seen the new star in the sky, and everything would have changed from that. The story didn't need that. But that was my signal to KD to say, new star in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> this is a speculative yeah. story. And I got a semifinalist with that. Did you? So there are ways to hint up front and still build to your That's big good. surprise. That's, that's a very good tip on that one. 
So what else do we have here on principles of structure? We've already gone over that you've got the beginning inciting incident. It takes us to middle, climax, changes something, and then your ending. So that's, we've already, I think we've pretty much covered that pretty well. But um, you talk about, you know, Jody, Jody's uh, very well known as a science fiction humor. So the next thing you talk about is jokes. So talk about that, please. The, there's a difference between humor and jokes. It's, it's, it's important. Um, and, and Jody, anybody who writes humor, Jody really wants to see your submissions. She really does because she loves humor. She likes to see it. But Dave had a principle, and I think she agrees on this. The contest never gets enough good humor. It gets too much bad humor. So realize when you're submitting, you're submitting to somebody who has high standards for humor in Indeed fiction. she does. But humor is still got to be a story. It's still got to have that beginning, middle, ending, and so on. And far too often a joke is a setup and a punchline. Or maybe a setup and a bunch of humorous events. But if those humorous events are not building to a lesson learned or a life changed, then it's a joke. And that's going to be one that's probably going to get passed because it it, uh, it can be amusing, but it isn't significant as a story. Now, give it a shot. If you think your story is a story and is humorous, give it a shot. But, but beware that a, a shaggy dog story probably won't work but if it's elaborate enough and there's some changes some think of it as lessons mm -hmm. learned then you'd pull pull Good. it off all right so now one thing that commonly comes up um probably in general but the subject of grammar and punctuation and spelling let's address that oh man and people hate those because we all make mistakes if i could go through a day without typos it would be a brilliant day and so nobody's expecting you to be perfect. Right. But in that first couple of pages, you want to try to be perfect. That doesn't mean perfectly grammatical. It means perfectly consistent with character voice. So if your character is, for instance, a Russian person, and Russians who speak English have a real tendency to leave out articles and even leave out to-be verbs, I have worked with a lot of Russian programmers in my life, and you learn to pick up this rhythm where is and to be and the and ah just kind of get forgotten when they're in in excited mode. If you're going to do a good Russian character, you can be skipping those. If you're doing a middle-of-the-road, college-educated, Midwestern executive, you probably want relatively complete sentences, but not always because dialogue is uneven so you need to be having clean copy typos those are noticeable spelling errors those are noticeable broken grammar is noticeable but there's a difference between broken grammar and character voice i myself write a lot of sentence fragments because in my head that's what the character is saying I probably, as a person, use a lot of sentence fragments and don't even realize I'm doing it. 
the point is that in that first couple of pages, you don't want reasons for the slush reader to say, oh, this person doesn't know what they're writing. Right. So a lot of typos will get you in trouble. A few typos, yeah. A lot of grammar problems will get you in trouble. A few, yeah. Carrie and I discussed this, and we came to the conclusion that the magic number is five. If you have under five pages in that first couple of, or under five errors in that first couple of pages, the slush reader is probably going to notice them, but say everybody makes a mistake. But if you've got 15, 20, the slush reader is going to say this person doesn't quite have a handle on their writing yet. Right. But there's an exception on that, a particular grammar error, which is tense shifts and point of view shifts. And honestly, these two issues, tense and point of view, which are commonly treated as one issue, perspective, point of view, that is very often the mark between somebody who's ready to be published and somebody who isn't. That you start out telling the story how Glenn saw things in the world around him, and for no particular discernible reason, with no obvious break, all of a sudden, you're seeing things through Beth's eyes, and you're hearing what Beth feels. And all of a sudden, you're back to Glenn, and then you're over to Duke the dog, and you're seeing <laughs> things through Duke's point of view. All of this works if it's intentional, but it's very hard to do well early on in the story as you're trying to establish who your characters are. Traditionally, you have a double space between paragraphs when you've shifted point of view so that, hey, we have 20 paragraphs of Bob or Glenn, I guess I called him Glenn. We have 20 paragraphs of Glenn, extra line break, 30 paragraphs of Beth, extra line break, back to Glenn, extra line break, here comes Duke. If your early pages are broken up into lots and lots of little snippets with line breaks between them, it starts to look uneven. Not that you can't do it. And if you do it well so that the slush reader is aware that you're doing it intentionally, you'll pull it off. But the other thing is there are people, and when we talk about formatting, it comes into this. There are people who really don't format their manuscripts well. And so sometimes you can just look at a story and say, this isn't formatted very well. This person didn't think about this. Now, if you've got lots of those line breaks, extra line breaks in there because you're switching point of view, switching point of view, switching point of view, it looks like you're doing bad formatting. Right. So sticking to one point of view and shifting intentionally is what you should aim for. And it's hard for new authors because they are seeing everything through every character's hat, which is good. You want to identify with your characters. I'm literally a method actor when I dictate my stories. I have found, and this is going to sound weird, my characters have a better vocabulary than I do. I will be dictating in a character's voice, and I will say a word or a phrase from some historical period where that character comes from or some cultural point of view, and I will use it correctly, and it's something I would never say in my normal everyday speaking. So it's okay to get in your character's head, 
but you should only be in one character's head at a time. And when you're writing that opening to the story, if you're shifting from character to character, we call it head hopping, it's an indication that you don't have control of point of view. And that will, whereas I said five will be okay in the first couple of pages, I think your third head hop, you're probably in trouble. Good, yeah. All right, and so there's definitely more more points that you listed off here in the um, principles of structure, but we're down to the last few minutes here. So let's briefly touch upon principles format. And once again, this is going to be a blog posted on writersofthefuture.com in the blog. So in the title is going to be called um, Martin's Opinion on the Unwritten Rules. So you can search for that and get more detail of each of these points we're discussing. So real briefly, then we're down to the last couple of minutes here on principles of format. Number one, the most important, don't put your name in it anywhere. And that includes the file name. Carrie tells me some people, which is a habit that I do when submitting to analog. I put my name in the title of the file so that if it gets lost, they know who wrote it. But not for this contest. It is absolutely anonymously judged. Do not put your name anywhere in there. Carrie tells me that this is not something that will trip you up necessarily, but but if you have editor changes and track changes and comments embedded in your text, those are visible to the slush reader. And sometimes those include your name. And so get rid of those, clean those out. Don't include the track changes. Any way possible that your name could appear, cut it out. The slush readers do not want to throw out your story because you forgot that. Jody does not want to forget your story, throw out your story, but it's the rules. If we know, well, okay, to be very specific, if Jody knows who wrote the story, it's out. If Carrie knows who wrote the story, Carrie will pass it to Jody with a note that says, I cannot judge this one. And she won't be saying why. But it's the most obvious is she knows who it is. Jody cannot know in any way who wrote it. So get your name out. Number one format issue. Good. That's that's so important. And um, now what about as our last point here in terms of uh, formatting? uh, Can I use um, red font? (laughs) <laughs> to uh, highlight the really important parts I want them to have their attention on and do single space versus triple space because I want them to like slow down. So I'm going to slow it down with triple space and speed it up with single space or anything like that. Trying to catch the reader's attention with format is going to catch their attention in a bad way. <laughs> um formatting rules are at the end because they're the most forgivable of all of them. Single space, the contest doesn't want to see single space. You're not going to get rejected for it, but you are going to make a grumpy slush reader and a grumpy slush reader may be prejudiced against the story unfairly, but subconsciously double spaced with a nice, plain old ordinary font. If you look for shun S H U N N William shun wrote a, description of the standard manuscript format that a lot of markets write in. Choose that if you can. But but fancy fonts or fancy colors, if, if you want emphasis, go for bold. Bold and italic are good emphasis. Changing colors and such, 
you're thinking like a printed book and this submission is not yet printed it needs to be easy for the reader to read good good so we've got several more points in here but we're, we're out of time right now um, again i highly recommend to get this in more detail and just very succinctly stated in the blog that's going up on this and it's going to be on the rise um site for forever so you'll be able to both listen to this podcast as well as as read this this has been great martin i'm just i'm glad you sent me this your initial email saying i've got this this post on the forum i think is important and i absolutely agree so it's also on the forum too under martin shoemaker you can search him as well and find it there so this has been great and um with that i thank you all for listening Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Martin. Thank you.